Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Greg, the SVP of engineering at Divi, and we discuss how Divi exposes their engineers to other parts of the business through Empathy Hour, thoughts on inspiration and self-care, and the impact definitions have when it comes to team alignment. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hello, hello. Hey, how are you? I'm taking the beard. Thank you. When I when I saw your uh, picture on the show prep, I was like, this guy looks like a rock star. He must be in a <laughs> rock band. And my team was like, are you kidding? He actually is or he was in high school and I was so pumped up. I was like, yep, that's good. I like it when people, they look similar to how I imagine them, like right off the bat, it makes me happy. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, no, I, I still uh, have the adornments of Rockstar. I've got like the drum set behind me and guitars on the wall. So not rocking out like I used to, but yeah, still still having me, I guess. We tried to hunt down the band. We were trying to find some songs and things like that. We couldn't. We have a good research team. We found Jason Warner's secret CTO of GitHub, his secret past life of writing fitness books, but we could, <laughs> but we couldn't find your rock band though. Yeah, no, that's sad. I, uh, I don't know. There, there's a few that I've been in and it seems like for one reason or another, like a lot of what we had has kind of like, I don't know, left the, the abyss of the internet even. So I, I think one of it was like one band I was in, we had a bunch of videos saved on the hard drive and a hard drive blew up or whatever and you know stupid old teenagers us we didn't like back it up multiple times or anything so that, that stuff's gone so yeah i still have a i actually found my ipod or rather my son found my ipod and it had some of our songs on there so we so i've still got some stuff around oh so it's still out there nice yeah yeah probably find it on um I tried to make a reference, but I just forgot the name. What what was the uh, Napster? There we go. Probably oh. find it on Napster <laughs> along with some viruses. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Download at your own risk. So you're out in Utah? I am. Yeah. I heard that it's called the Silicon Slopes out there. Yeah, that's what we call it. And I, I think that uh, it's, a, it's a big thing for us. I'm not always sure how much the, the rest of the, the world or the nation sees us as kind of a as big of a tech hub, but it is growing like crazy. There actually are a lot of great tech companies here. And yeah, the Silicon Slopes area is, it's definitely fun to be in for that reason. I was looking for different weather patterns and climates, places that I want to live because I live in Florida and it's extremely hot all the time. And that's fine when it was me and my wife, but now our little kids want to go outside all the time. And so we were exploring different places of weather and there's this band that's like it, it cuts through southern Utah and Texas and Nevada and that was a great area we couldn't find any any like largely populated towns though in southern Utah so is it more northern like where everyone's going there for snow and the slopes yeah so I, I'd say if you're looking for like a, a bigger population in southern Utah it's probably St. George uh, my parents actually have a home down there and St. George has has pretty warm weather all year long. Some people say maybe too hot in the summer. And so they'll often have like a winter home down there. Up where, where I am and where Silicon Slopes is and everything is, is I think technically northern Utah. It's like the Wasatch Front, like the Salt Lake City area. And we've, we've got good seasons all around. Like so summer gets pretty toasty. Like we'll get over 100 a few times in the summer. Uh, and then fall we'll get below freezing and we'll have snow. Down, I'm, I'm a little further south than Salt Lake, and so we actually get less snow. Like, I think I have to plow my driveway like 
twice a year type of thing, which isn't bad. But then the mountains are still close enough that I can go skiing, you know, sometimes up until like July at some of the resorts. So yeah, Utah's awesome if you want to get outside and do things. And that's that we've, I've got kids too. And that's one thing we've been doing a lot, especially during the pandemic is getting outside and going biking and hiking and whatnot. Do you have any good, like fun facts about Utah? Fun facts about Utah. Um, it was a while ago, but I remember when I, I grew up in like really Northern Utah in like the, the Cache Valley area, which is kind of a smaller part. Um, and I remember at the time we were up there, I think we, we got like some award for like the highest life expectancy in the U S and we always used to joke it's because we had like the best water. Cause you could drink just tap water and it was always really tasty and really clean and everything. At least we thought, I don't know who maybe knows something was in there, but but yeah, high life expectancy. And I think it was also the safest uh, city of its size in the nation at the time too. So, I mean, like the perfect place to grow up, I guess, long lives and safe lives. So, so how do you go from like mountain child to rock band to tech? Like what, <laughs> what's the progression of your career? Yeah, so that's a good question. I would say it's probably different than, than many in the tech world. Uh, I actually, so in high school, I always I was always fascinated by engineering and things like that. And so I think I always had my sights on, it was, it was actually really around like mechanical and aerospace engineering. I wanted to be a rocket scientist and not just to brag about it, which which is a benefit, but also because I was fascinated by like aircraft and, and race cars and things like that. Uh, so I always had my sights on that, but uh, around high school and, and then shortly after like getting into college, I actually started in sales and, and was pretty big into sales for a few years. Uh, managed a sales team and, and did recruiting for a sales company. Um, so I was really big into that and did well by all the normal measures, like um, was successful enough at it. Um, definitely learned a lot. I think there's a lot you can learn from sales that I think maybe be harder to learn other other careers or, or jobs. Um, but then from there went from like a really kind of direct sales job to then actually working at Best Buy and started in sales at Best Buy. And then got onto the Geek Squad, which was kind of fun. That was just, I don't know. Um, it's always fun to say you're on the Geek Squad, I guess. It's kind of a good old nostalgic time. And then from there, uh, at the time I was in college at the same time. And uh, I remember this opportunity came up where we, I think all the students got like an email about Microsoft and how they were hiring for internships and for positions because they're just opening up an office actually here in Utah. Um, I was going to, to school at University of Utah at the time. And little old audacious me thought, yeah, sure. Like I'm, I'm in my computer science degree. I think I'm in like my, my third year, second year or something like, yeah, I know enough to go work at Microsoft. No problem. Um, so I applied and was like, Hey, I think you guys would be, would like, I'd be a great fit. There it should be a lot of fun. Sure enough, they called me back and, and I, I go through the interviews and everything there and ended up landing an internship at Microsoft. And that was kind of my switch from like historically more of maybe like a sales focused job and to then like actually being in tech and jumped over to Microsoft as a, as an SDET, as an intern and was there for a few years. And, um, shortly, shortly after Microsoft, uh, kind of hopped around between uh, big and small companies, like went to a startup after that and then quickly got into leadership. And that's actually where I've been most of my career now is, is in leadership in tech. So. That's actually really interesting. I like your story of having sales experience because I developed product for several years and didn't have like sales experience uh, as far as a B2B operational sales process goes. 
And so when, when I was developing product, you know, you're reading about product, you're understanding the customer needs, you understand, like that's common in product world and engineering world. Most people have had the experience where you're understanding like how to process customer feedback. But what isn't common there is actually having to sell the business value of the product. And the only way I've gotten that experience is by actually participating as a full-time member of a sales team. And when you see it from that perspective of what it feels like to go through a sales process and the people either, you know, understanding which candidate's good or if they're going to ghost you or however the cadence may be between the relationships of this and then the, the sheer volume, the fact that, you know, you're closing like 20% and that's like great 20 or 30%. That's like amazing. And, and so the amount of conversations you have to have, and then what you glean from all the different people and what, how it's, you get this new thing that happens where you start detecting these patterns between everybody because you're talking to so many people and they're all kind of saying the same thing. And all of those skills, like one of the things, I guess, if I had to choose something to go back and like teach my younger self, it, it would be, you know, get in a, you know, you love the technology you're building stuff, but go participate on a sales team because it would just amplify your ability to create product. Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. The, the it's it's funny how different uh, it, it is to be a salesperson even at the same company. Where in the past, what I've, one thing I've liked to do is is have my engineering team see or even like you said participate in some of the sales demos and things like that. And it's it, it's not as the same as having that job full time because, like you said, there's there's a lot to it that's that's different. The you know I like the idea of uh, you have to do a lot of work to win, not is often like, you know, if you're closing, like you said, like 20% of the time, like that's probably like amazing. Right. So that, that means that you're not closing, that you're maybe in a sense kind of failing 80% of the time or more. And I think for engineers, that's a really kind of foreign concept that I think, especially for younger engineers, when they start out, they don't want to start something and think that they might fail at it. They want to start and know that they'll be successful. And so maybe they're, they're not willing to do as much research or take many risks on being as creative and things like that. And that they'll kind of stick with what may have been a bad decision at the beginning of a project because they're too afraid to let it fail and kind of start over. Whereas to a salesperson, that's just part of the job. And so, yeah, no, I, I, I like that. Uh, I'll, I'll show demos to, to engineers and it, it's fun to see like their surprise when they, they realize like, wow, I thought totally differently of our product. Like I just had a very different relationship with what our product is and what it does based on, on how I work on it. And then to see a salesperson present it to a, a prospect is like, wow, like totally eye-opening. I didn't even think about it that way. So it's really cool for them to get that understanding. Yeah. It's like you can fall in love as an engineer with different features based off of their complexity or what was happening while you were building them and all of this attachment. And it's, it's really interesting to get that other perspective. Now at Divi, when you have, you guys are growing larger company now, uh, how do you still keep that? Do you have like an onboarding process? Do you just bring in sales team to talk with them? How do you make sure that the engineers that, you know, just like how you were an intern at Microsoft, that the engineers starting out early at Divi are getting exposed to all of these things? Yeah. Uh, one thing that we we were doing, we COVID kind of shook a lot of things up. And so I think we're trying to get back into to some of the old habits that we had. Um, so we could definitely be better with some of these things, but some of the things we've we've done in the past is we had what we called empathy hour, where we would actually have engineers take like rotations with like the sales team or the customer support team and would sit right next to them at their desk, or I guess, you know, preferably now like on a, on a Zoom call or something, 
um, and be there to, to participate in what they're doing and, and to like take notes and like really get into it and understand like what the position is, what the position is, but like what the, what the person's doing and the challenges they're seeing kind of day in and day out. Um, and that helped a lot because it, it literally did build a lot of that empathy. Um, and the engineers would come back, uh, kind of back to their own role again with like a greater sense of, of understanding about more of the product and things and more of our business, but then also motivation to, to do more to serve the customer and to, to make our product better in that regard too. So that was a big thing that we do is we'd do that empathy hour and we would do it for, for both new employees and for old too, just kind of keep it on as a regular thing. So yeah, that was, that was, I think that was one of the best things. Um, there's also, you know, making sure that we have, I think we've got a really good alignment between sales and product and engineering and making sure those relationships are really good and that we're providing opportunities for people to, to strike up conversations, even if it's kind of like water cooler talk. A lot of times that water cooler talk t turns into, yeah, hey, over in the sales team, like we're, we're looking at like this thing and like this has been like a, a either like a great opportunity for us now that this feature's out or like, man, like we're getting beat up because we don't have this. And, and again, having engineers like with those opportunities to hear that and, and to be, again, just, just socializing even with, with members of different teams uh, can help a lot. So we, we try to provide opportunities where we're just getting people to mingle. Nice. I like that. I like the branding of empathy hour. Cause I haven't, I haven't heard that before, but it's, it's really clear and it, it's a, it's a, I find that sometimes if you can like brand these things, then they're easier to understand and easier to make happen. Yeah. So what was it like? What's the story of you actually like meeting the leadership team at Divi? Yeah. So I was introduced to them, uh, the co-founders, Blake Murray and Alex Bean here at Divi by a friend of mine um, who knew them kind of growing up and whatnot. And when, when Blake and Alex were just starting Divi, really kind of just had the idea of it. They, they knew that it was going to be something big and they wanted to, to get started right away, hiring an engineering team to get building on the product and like off to the races. Right. So they, they were very ambitious and, and kind of bold and how they wanted to get going really quick. And so I got introduced to them and immediately off the bat was super impressed both by them personally. They, they definitely came from backgrounds where uh, they understood what it took to, to build a company um, and to have it be successful. And despite what I think maybe could have appeared to be like arrogance on like, hey, our idea is amazing and it's going to go somewhere. Um, it didn't, it wasn't arrogant. It was, it was just the confidence that, yeah, we have a great idea. We have something we know is going to work well. We're really passionate about it. It solves a big problem or even a set of problems that, that businesses everywhere face. And so it's, it's, it's a really fun product to, to help deliver. And that was infectious. Like I, I bought in immediately and thought, yeah, this is going to be something big and I want to be a part of it. Um, so it was, yeah, I, I was sold on it knowing that Divi was going to be a big thing. And, and sure enough, I mean, like sometimes we'll, we'll continually have our record days and record months and things like that. Um, we're growing. And so we're going to continue having those hopefully for a long time. And so on one hand, it's like, holy cow, like, look at what we're doing. On the other hand, it's also like, yeah, we, we talked about this a while back. Like we, you know, again, not arrogantly, but confidently knew like we would get to this stage. Like we knew that we had something special here. And, and if we worked hard on, on executing on it, it would go somewhere. And it's been fun to see that. So what's, what does it do? What's the problem that you solve? Yeah. So the, the kind of core, uh, I guess what, like what Divi is, is it's a combination of like a bank product, like a, a corporate card product for, for companies to use for spending and then coupling that with innovative software that allows companies to then 
create budgets for their teams and for projects to divvy funds to one another to give people money to spend but all while controlling it so that they they don't overspend and so they can see how money is being spent in real time as opposed to like you know after the fact when the books are closed um, and then eliminating the expense report because everything's done kind of in real time in the software and so the i, I guess if you had to say like what's the maybe if you could pick that pull out one core value prop it's that it gives uh, businesses a lot more power visibility into how they spend money that's pretty cool does it do like cash flow analysis stuff or just is it just divvying money between like if i need a virtual card uh i can like boot one up like we just had a new employee a new team member join and she was like what's the card number and like we need to get her a new card so we could just do that virtually and then she can spend money yeah exactly so it's it, the idea then one of the things i really love about it is uh, everyone at the company can have a card, can have a physical card to use to spend on on company expenses. Uh, they can be given that money, um, you know, if it's like recurring every month or just like if, if they ask for it, sort of speak. So they're empowered to spend on on what they need to spend money on. And there's the I think that empowerment is really cool for employees. They they feel like, hey, I, I want to go do this thing or buy this thing because it helps me in my job. Like, great, I've already got the money for it. Like, you know, I'm empowered to go do it. Um, and yeah, you can create virtual cards uh, in real time on the fly for online purchases and things so you can make them more safely and, um, and track those things too. So like one thing I love about too is we can track all of our SaaS subscriptions and software that we use because we'll put them on virtual cards and track the month over month spending and things like that. So we can see, um, you know, maybe if something like, uh, you know, as simple as like our, our JIRA bill or something going up and up or, or tracking things um, so we can forecast, so we can understand how efficient we are. And were you like one of the first employees? Yeah, so they, I came in about a month after we really got started. I think I'm technically employee number 13. Um, and we, I mean, with that, so that means we hired like 15 or so employees in the first couple months. Like they, they started out with a bang. They, they created like a, most of that was engineering. So we created a, a fairly significant engineering team for a, for a new startup. Um, just cause again, we, we knew our mission, we knew our objective, we knew what we wanted to build. Um, so it was just a matter of getting to work and building that. So yeah, so I've, I've been here for about the whole time that Divi's been around, which has again, been really cool. And where are you at today as far as like size, if you can share it? Yeah. So we're, we're around like the 300 employee mark. Um, so we're still, I don't know, I guess like in some ways I, I it, we, it seems like we're smaller, maybe employee, uh, account wise. Uh, but in terms of what we're doing as a company, you know, growing customer count wise, like crazy and, um, you know, revenue going up and up and up and all those things, all the measures just growing like crazy. And so I, I would say uh, in most ways, Divi's it kind of feels or, or acts like a bigger company than we are uh, and an older company that we are. And I think, again, part of that's because we've just grown so fast. We've we've had to be that way. So who are these customers? What do they look like? Yeah, it's a good question. Most of them are, are SMBs, um, small to medium businesses, and everyone might define that differently. But uh, for Divi, it, it really can be anyone from like the mom and pop shops who just have you know a small family owned, owned business with a few employees, uh, up to like uh, bigger companies. Like we have some tech companies that use us that are in like the thousands of employees range. So um, that's maybe more of like what we probably consider mid market or something. But um, it kind of spans that whole gamut. And what's great about it is it's a free product. So um, if you're a really small company and you're tight on budget, right, you can you can afford Divi because it's free. 
Um, that way you can also uh, stop paying for other solutions that you kind of cobble together to do some of what Divi does. So it actually saves you money right off the bat that way. Um, but then we can grow with you. So when you're a bigger company, you can continue using Divi. Um, and like vertical wise, it works for everyone. We have tech companies, we have construction companies, we have agencies, um, dentists. I mean, you name it, we're, we're kind of everywhere, which is really cool. So how do you make money? What's your revenue model? Yeah. So the card that we issue, it's the, like the Divi card, um, the companies then use to make all their purchases with, um, that has like a standard interchange rate, like every credit card and Divi participates in a big portion of, the, of getting that interchange. So that's, oh, that's nice. where we make money. Yeah. So it's, it's really cool. And in a lot of ways we say like, we, we build like we're a software company, but then we make money like we're a bank. Um, and that's really beneficial, especially to the customers, because again, it makes it so we can have a free product. Um, but the way that we make money as a company grows and scales in a really exciting way still. Okay. So help me with this. So you're employee 13, you're at you know, over 300 now. You were there the whole time. What is like the biggest takeaway from, from that growth? Oh man, the biggest takeaway from mm -hmm. that growth. Oh, it's hard to pick just one. Um, the takeaway for me is, I think it's around kind of having that, that confidence and looking ahead, um, you know, cause with Divi's just grown so explosively, um, we've had to make sure we keep up with ourselves and, and ideally stay ahead so we can keep growing in things. And I think a lot of that came down to us, um, even when we were smaller acting and feeling like we were more successful, maybe not bigger, but, but more successful, like even before we made a single dollar in revenue, uh, in many ways, we acted like we we were making more and not out of like a celebrating prematurely type of thing or, you know, counting counting your chickens for the, the eggs hatch. The way that I, I kind of joke about it is that you almost like fake it till you make it. And it's and again, it's not in order to like deceive anyone. If, if anything, it's it's to give yourself that kind of mental permission um, to act like how you want to be when you're successful and and making that mental switch in and of itself is almost like one of the biggest obstacles to then like actually being successful that, that again, early on, we, we made that mental switch and said, we're going to be big, we're going to be successful. So what are the things that we're doing that, 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 that mir mimics that or mirrors that, if that makes sense? Like what, like if we are a successful company, how do we act? You know, like we, we honor quality and things. We put customers first. Uh, these are the practices internally that we, that we follow or adhere to. Um, these are the things that we're going to see, um, coming that successful companies see. And so how do we, how are we going to handle it? And so again, it's, 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 you fake it till you make it, not because you're, you're trying to deceive anyone or pretend more that just, you want to put yourself like mentally into that state where it's like, okay, if I am successful, what am I doing? Like what, what am I doing? That's, that's going to match that level of, of success and drive. I a hundred percent get it. So when I started, I said, you know, on day one, I said, we're number one. And, and we're like, well, we haven't even put out any episodes yet. So I know I was like, we're number one from the day we start, because what happens is in everything we do, we're asking ourselves, what, it, what would the number one do? What would, mm -hmm. what would the number one leadership and technology podcast in the world do? How would they act? What, what, what type of people would they have? And what topics would they cover? Well, they'd cover the topics that are most useful to people, right? They would bring the most value. And so then you get into this, you know, mindset, like as you were describing of making decisions from a, 
perspective of where you want to be. It's like, this is what the version of who I want to become would do. Like, what would the best version of Joel do? Right? What would the best version of Greg do? And then you slowly and surely take action and become a better, incrementally better version. And then, you know, years later, you look back and everyone's like, how'd you do that? And we're like, All right. every decision we made, we made it from that position. And then we got here. Yep. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly it. I think that there's often obstacles that we put in front of ourselves where we, we don't do certain things or act a certain way because we're kind of waiting for like that if or that when um, that it's like, well, you know, when we're seeing that success, then, then it will be that way. Or like when I've, when I've learned to do that better, then, then I'll be a better leader type of thing or, you know, uh, but often we, we have to put ourselves there first. And again, that's not to say that like you do that and you're done. There, there's obviously a, a lot of work to do still, but it, it gives you that mental, like sets that kind of mental identity almost of like, I'm successful. And that's not like me bragging or boasting or trying to deceive anyone. That's me saying like, so what am I doing to be successful? And it like immediately raises those things. Like you said, it's, it's a good way to, to kind of uh, view decisions of, okay, like if, if, what would we do if we're going to be successful and kind of look at it through that lens? Yeah, because as humans, we, we want to be in alignment with our identity, we want to do the things that we say we're doing. And so if you're saying I'm successful, it forces you to actually evaluate yourself to see if you're lying or not. It's like just an internal check process that happens. And that's a very motivating experience. Yeah. Yeah, I think it it especially resonates. uh, Though I think it's a bit harder to make that mental switch with uh, maybe the, like the more common engineering personalities, um, we often tend to be the types that are maybe more cynical or pessimistic of, of situations and we're quick to find problems. That's part of our job. And so again, it's, it's, it's often this like, uh, exercise that we go through to say like, well, we can't be that way because of this, this, and this. And, and so like we, again, almost even subconsciously prevent ourselves from, from believing in ourselves and believing that we are going to be successful because we see these obstacles, you know, winners don't have zero obstacles to overcome the most successful people, companies, you know, whatever, even like teams, families aren't like free of obstacles or, or, or friction that that makes their forward progress harder. Um, in fact, in a lot of cases, they, they have more of that and that's forced them to, to have more of that kind of mental fortitude or strength to like power through that. So I I think it's, it's harder to maybe convince many engineering personalities of that. But if you're able to do that, I think you, it's it's really fun to see what happens. And you know, I think we've had some examples of that at Divi, um, and it's kind of been built into some of our DNA as well, which which I think has been a big a big part of our success. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's one of the reasons why I like this podcast so much is because the listeners have already gotten out of that. Like they they might still have a little pessimism or cynicism, but they've already gotten over the hump of, I need to go learn from other bright people. And then that's how they find the podcast. They're either, you know, really frustrated. They're at a breaking point or they're just, they're at this crossroads moment. And so they do the search, right. To learn from some other technical leaders, they come across our content or they're talking to friends or somebody refers it to them. And then they're like, whoa, I can go learn from you know, CTO of like Divi or NASA or my, you know, somebody amazing like yourself. And then they start playing the episodes and they start learning like, whoa, I'm so similar to these people, but we got, and then they can just, you know, move forward on their growth path because there's so much growing to do. It's like, I was listening to someone talk earlier this week and they were saying, 
you start out new and you, it's like you're invincible and you think you understand everything. And then you get to the growth point where you realize how far you really have to go to be great. And it's like a paradox. And like, once you get to that point that you realize how much work it takes to be great, then you get the choice. And that's like a, that's like a becoming a big boy moment. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, you, uh, I'm actually really fascinated by that. It's, I think what you described is the Dunning Kruger effect. Really? The, yeah. It's, it's a, it's, I, uh, yeah, I, I don't want to claim to be an expert on it, but it's, Oh, you are now well. you're the, uh, introducing <laughs> Greg, the resident expert on the Dunning Kruger effect. <laughs> I mean, really, it should be the Dunning-Kruger-Larsen effect, I guess, right? But no. Um, yeah, I, I, I think, but from what I understand, it, it describes the phenomenon you're describing, where uh, the less you know, the more you think you know. And so you're more prone to overestimate your ability or to think that you're doing better than you are. But then the more that you know and the more confident you become, the more you're able to recognize that there's more that you don't know or, or that there's more to grow. And so, yeah, I think that... Uh, you know, it, sometimes that looks like imposter syndrome, maybe, or or that it feels like it's it's like it's like you get lower confidence as you actually become better, which is maybe unfortunate in some ways. So it's good to recognize that you know it's okay to feel like you don't know everything. Like it's if anything, actually, maybe a positive sign, right? It I've never really understood the I've heard a couple explanations, but I never really understood the imposter syndrome because like I work really hard for the things, but I kind of, I kind of get it though, because when you work really hard for a really long period of time, you just distance the point from when it was really difficult and you had nothing. And then you can, entitlement can kind of set in or your mind can kind of play tricks on you. And you're like, do I deserve this? I mean, so I guess I kind of, I kind of get it, but um, on the surface level of the argument, like when I first ran into it, I was like, what? I was <laughs> like, that just sounds like a bunch of privileged people complaining. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, maybe I should research this more so I understand it better because it's kind of like a lot of people talking about it. So I, I think it's more nuanced than just my 30 second Google search. Yeah. 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 I think, I think a lot of these things kind of come back to like this, like sense of fear. And again, that um, fear manifests in a lot of different ways. And sometimes for people, it's the fear of being wrong because maybe they take a lot of pride in their own ability to be right, or maybe they're afraid of being wrong because of how other people will suddenly see them and they'll lose that clout or credibility or whatever it may be. And so, uh, yeah, I think there's, you know, that may be just one of the many ways that fear manifests itself in, in different people in different situations. You got to stomp that fear out. Yeah. And, and like, honestly, sometimes it, it, it sounds, it sounds too easy um, but in practice, obviously it's a lot harder, but a lot of times you really just have to stop yourself from, from dwelling on something like that. Like I, I've definitely learned, uh, as a, as a technical leader, especially as an executive, there's a lot more pressure. There's, there's a lot, uh, like writing on decisions that you make and the performance from you and your team. And so, uh, yeah, stakes are high, the pressure is high and that can crush someone. Um, I've, I've seen it crush people where it is just too much. And, Again, it seems almost like too trivial to even like be considered good advice. But in a lot of ways, sometimes you really do just literally have to stomp it out. Like you said, you just have to put it out of your mind and say, I, I don't need to have fear around this. or I don't need to worry about this. Or And, and again, like sometimes it's maybe I need to go write that down and, and create a task to do something about it. But then I have to be very conscious in my thoughts saying, 
okay, stop thinking about it, stop dwelling on it, stop worrying about it. That's it's no longer productive. So just eliminate it. Don't even entertain it. And tell me, tell me if you find this to be true at all, because it's something I've kind of been experiencing. So I want to check it against others. So being that executive and going through those cycles, right? Those cycles of like things being okay and then things getting like unbearably crushed and then you choosing not to give up and then things get better. And it, after it happens through enough cycles and you never give up on any of them, like you want to, you'll get to the edge, but you don't. You realize that this is a part of the process and then that gives you kind of the ability to relax during the next storm a little bit because you you kind of begin to understand this this is just something that happens and i guess you get more mature with it and under you you learn better how to deal with it and you learn better how to control your mind and rationalize and understand uh but yeah you know for me what's helped a lot is like faith and that it's all going to work out because you feel like the world's ending but then it doesn't. And like the universe gives a little bit, right? And you make it through it and then you grow a little bit and then you feel like it's gonna, the sky is falling again. You just, and then you just kind of realize that this, this happens. Yeah, no, I think there's definitely a, an amount of steadiness that comes with experience, uh, just like you're saying. And especially for, for like the executive type of leader, I, I would even say for, for engineers, you know, like I think COVID-19 rocked a lot of people. And, you know, I don't think anyone has, experience on the resume for handling global pandemics. But I, I think that it brought with it a lot of challenges that that I know I in my team, I saw our more experienced team members exercise a, a higher level of steadiness that kind of like you said, like, they see it not not as like less of a problem, like it's not that it's they're not concerned about solving the problem or, or you know, mitigating issues or, or whatever that come their way. But it's the yeah, I think to your point, they they have that like faith or that confidence that yeah, we can, we can do something about this. We'll grow from it. I, I think, you know, as, as sometimes silly as it sounds like when you're in the middle of it, when people are like, look at this as an opportunity, you're like, thanks. Yeah, this is, I love expletive, that. Expletive, expletive, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. exactly. But, but I think there's a lot of truth to that, where if you can look at the hard times as, hey, this, this is an opportunity where, you know, we're being presented with a problem that we can solve and that we're going to solve. And, and again, it kind of comes back to that, like, are you know are you successful and, and are you acting successful and sometimes you gotta again like kind of go back to faking it until you make it a little bit more to say like okay like don't give in to the fatalism and say like everything's terrible let's give up but more so no we're successful and and this is this is either an issue that's kind of come our way that we, we're gonna have to do something about or or maybe we kind of brought this issue upon ourselves but it's not because we're terrible it's it's we got to fix some problems and we're going to because we're successful because we're better than that absolutely and then you know always cross-referencing that feeling with the actions that you're taking and, and ensuring that the actions you're taking are help helping to mitigate that feeling like you don't want to end up there again so let's put into series like let's put into play a series of actions that'll keep me from getting there again and yeah, you exactly. just grow a little bit. That's why I think the leadership stuff is so interesting because I've been on both sides where I've been like, you know, the engineer and I've been the leader. And it's funny how some of the perspectives can be. And it's like, what do they, what do they do? Well, I mean, they kind of get paid to like eat glass and stare into the abyss as Elon Musk calls it. Right. <laughs> like it's, it's painful and it's difficult and you can't go sit down and write the code to solve the problem. You just have to 
grow that environment with the right team to get to get to the next step. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I think that's, that's one thing that, you know, again, at Divi, we kind of started early with was the mentality that we're not going to get together as an exec team and talk about our wins because those, those we should celebrate those. Um, but we're going to get to talk, get together and talk about our problems because that that's our job is to solve problems and that, that we shouldn't be worried about that or, or scared about that. And I think that, uh, you know, when I, what I, for example, when I'm interviewing leaders to, to join the engineering team here at Divi, um, it's always a bit of a red flag for me if, if we ask questions and they're hesitant to talk about their mistakes or problems or, or issues that they've had to deal with because either it shows that they haven't had experience going through those, which maybe kind of seems kind of odd unless they've just worked at perfect companies, I guess, or they're, they're, they're not facing them. They're, they're not taking them head on and, you know, playing that part. Cause it is, it is part of the job. Like it's, it's what we're here to do. Yeah. It's always interesting trying to evaluate someone's level of persistence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how hard are they going to work through the, the challenges that they face? How, how are they going to get through the walls that they encounter? Yeah. It's, it's really, it's really hard to vet, uh, leaders and in interviews, because um, yeah, a lot of those kind of skills and attributes and things are are a lot harder to draw out in that situation or or to like quantify. Like, there's no like, you know, programming assessment you can give them that is like a leadership assessment. So yeah, it's it's definitely hard. It is hard. One of the things that I was playing with recently, it's not like something I do all the time, but I was exploring it. Was I was asking people in interviews, um, what's the what was the most difficult thing that's happened in their life. It's amazing the spectrum of stuff that you get from like one time my car wouldn't start (laughs) (laughs) to like very seriously traumatic situations. And then I'm always curious, like, what did you take away from those situations? And I find that the, the people that have and I'm not saying that it's a requirement that everybody have incredible trauma in their life, but I find people that have had significant trauma and have chosen to overcome that trauma and not let it define them and instead let it empower them, they typically have a higher level of persistence. It doesn't mean they're like the best programmer in the world. This is just speaking to like their personality. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that, you know, I was actually just talking about this with, uh, with, with Blake, our CEO here at Divi about how you you should look at the hard things, you know, again, not that you would necessarily wish them upon yourself. Um, if you can avoid them, great, but but they're gonna come. And, and when they do come, you should look at them as opportunities for growth. Um, and I think that's important, like you said, like that, that you can make that choice to grow through it or to, you know, maybe just survive through it or run from it even, but growing through it will, I think most times, like you're saying, make you a stronger person out on the other end. Yeah. And, and so I also like that you mentioned that you asked them that because you can see how adept they are at talking about it or describing it, because it's one thing to have been through something and to experience it and to overcome it. It's another thing to have the words to explain it and describe it and have conversation around it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, again, we're, we're problem solvers, leaders and engineers. And so we have to be able to communicate and talk well about problems. So let's let's talk about them. I'm curious to know, like, what is one of the the biggest problems that you overcame during your hyper growth phase? Yeah, um, I, I think that 
I would say one of them was, it, and it seems like it's probably a smaller problem, but um, it's something that I think is easy to take for granted because it is seemingly small. And that's that as, as we're growing fast and we're moving fast, uh, we don't have as much time to, or at least we don't give ourselves as much time to uh, make sure maybe we're communicating and aligning on things as clearly as we, as we probably need to. Um, and, you know, so like a good example of that is, is, for example, if we're telling teams like, hey, there's this opportunity, um, you know, speed is our advantage here. We're, we're, you know, breaking into this market, so to speak, or we're the ones first to, for this innovation. So, you know, speed is a big asset. So we have to go fast. And, you know, we'd often say from top down type, type of thing all the way through the ranks, people would be saying, let's go fast. And as simple as it may seem, everyone started interpreting that differently where go fast meant different things to different people. To some, it would mean go faster than how we've been going, which again, maybe they interpreted our pace as medium, or maybe they already felt like we were going at breakneck pace. Um, to others, it meant go fast with, you know, no, like almost recklessly fast, like with no cause or regard for, for quality or for tech debt or for anything like that. Um, others assume that, you know, go as fast as, really, we should pragmatically go. So, you know, there's maybe more nuance to that. And they would consider that. What we ended up with is, is we were all saying, go fast, right? And everyone's kind of like, uh-huh, yep, okay, let's go fast. <laughs> and then we all went fast. And that looked like very different things. And, and it turns out we were misaligned. And so it's really important to, to I think that's, it's a good example of where definitions matter a lot and, and explaining more about what you mean and not taking even like simple things for granted in your communication. Like, what does it mean to go fast? Um, you know, I, I was just explaining this again to the to, to my team about, you know, when we when we say things like this, what do we mean? Like, how do we clarify and get aligned on on what it means to go fast? Because for us, we want to go as fast as we can, um, but we don't want to go fast in such a way that compromises quality, for example. And and the two aren't mutually exclusive. I think you can actually get more quality by going faster. But, but there are some trade-offs at some point where if you go fast in a certain way, like if you choose to say, well, I could go faster if I stop testing. Well, okay, that is one way to increase speed, but not in a way we would ever choose to, right? Yeah, like, let's not do that. That's not acceptable. And so that, that yeah, that's, that's one of those things. Um, actually, I, had a, I have a friend who, he has another kind of interesting career path. Uh, he grew up in a family with with deaf parents, and so he learned American Sign Language, you know, kind of from day one. Um, probably his, kind of his primary language in many ways. And and early in his career, he was an interpreter, um, interpreting for for ASL. And I think he worked at a company, you know, managing a team of, of ASL interpreters. And and one day was approached with an opportunity to to basically be the head of a sales team, to go be VP of sales at a, at a SaaS company or something. And and he was telling me this like. I don't know what they saw in me that made them think like ASL interpreter, perfect sales leader, let's go. But he's like, you know what? I, and I think he's got some good sales chops, of course, but, but it was kind of a different, like a pivot for him. And he was reflecting on like, you know, so what do I take from my experience to be great here? And one of the things he pointed out, which I thought was really interesting is, was kind of this point that he said, when you're an interpreter, you pay a lot of attention to the words that you're using and, and what they mean and how they're going to be understood by people. Um, Cause communication is not the same as understanding. And so you have to be really careful and, and deliberate. And he said that he would try to do a lot of that when he would talk to his sales teams and sure enough, it made a really big difference. And so 
I think it's a good reminder for, for me and, and for the leaders when working with our teams to be maybe more conscious of the words that we're using and, and what, how, what effect they'll have on people and how they'll be understood. Because again, I think it's really easy as a leader to feel like, all right, check the box, I communicated. So, you know, message received, off everyone goes. But do they understand it? And, and, and is their understanding aligned with your understanding? Because you can communicate until you're blue in the face, but if there's not the right understanding, then it, it doesn't really matter as much. Yes. Yeah, you preach, man. There's like eight things I want to reply to. So the first one would be the sign language as a primary language. I fully believe that it can be because my kids, we could teach them sign language before they could speak. That was something mm -hmm. the schools, the, the daycares taught us. Like they could ask for more and everything like that yeah, with what they needed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I thought it was, I thought it was mind blowing because I could sit there and communicate to them with sign language, but they don't even have words really yet. Um, so that was interesting. But then what you were talking about too, about the communication and understanding, it, it is something that's interesting because what will happen or something I noticed with myself, I love to use myself as like the guinea pig all the time is that um, I was thinking about empathy and the similar to the analogy to the, the communication, but like as a verb, right? So it's like an action. It's like, it's like something that you do like to communicate. We'll say, Oh, I communicated. And what you're really normally saying is I told them I, I typed words to them or I said a sentence to them, but it's like, did you communicate like a verb? Like, did you, did you work with them to achieve an understanding that you both have? And so what will happen is especially, or what was happening with me is that because I, you know, host the podcast, because I write, because I go do speak or, or like speaking gigs and things like that. I have, I had this like underlying thing that like, I'm really good at this communication or really good at empathy because I focus on it from time to time and I do it intentionally from time to time, but realizing that it's something that has to be done in every moment and in every interaction. Now, realistically, as it plays out in the real world, you're not going to, to do it like that every single time. It would just be impossible, but at least having some awareness that it's not something that's just happening as a default background process. And when the moment arises where you need to make sure the communication happens, uh, go look up some of those tools and remind yourself of like what you can do to, to ensure that. But back to your fast pro or back to your problem thing with, with the word fast, what, what happened that allowed you to realize this fast thing was a, this misinterpretation of fast was, was creating chaos or not good. Yeah. I think one of the things that we've seen from time to time is uh, like earlier on, we, we were going fast and we saw some good results of, Hey, we're, we're getting stuff out the door on time. We're, we're moving forward on features and things like that. But then kind of later we saw like, there's, maybe some tech debt and us maybe cutting corners or maybe, uh, you know, copying, pasting, maybe not literally, but some, some practices that we actually wanted to change. And we didn't have time to kind of reassess and say, maybe this isn't the way we want to build this. It was kind of more just like, Hey, it looks like someone did it this way. I'll just keep doing it the same way. Cause we're just, we gotta just go. Right. Uh, this is the tool that I have, so I'm going to keep using it. And so at, th at that time it kind of came up where, we saw that the development velocity was starting to slow down because uh, we had gone too fast in, in some ways where we were accruing too much like tech debt, for example. Um, in other ways, more recently, we've seen that we've gone too fast um, and that, that, again, that wasn't interpreted the same way of what that meant um, by all leaders and all engineers and others. 
Um, and that resulted in some quality issues where we, we were going fast and some even believe like, you know, this is a really critical business objective. So we might have to actually compromise on quality, which could be a decision that, that can be made, right? Uh, it wasn't necessarily the one that we we consciously made. And so it was it was a surprise when shoot, like we're seeing some quality issues that we're we're not we're not happy about. And so again, it kind of first starts with, okay, are we actually aligned on our understanding of what it is to go fast and how we're going to choose to go fast? Um, and so that's where we kind of had to reset that. And so what was the actual actions that happened? Did you sit down, realize this is a problem, understand it, write up like a definition for fast and then have like an all hands of it? Like, how did you solve the fast problem tactically? Yeah, I mean, all the above. Um, so it, we we did write actual definitions and things and said, like, here's here's what it means when we say fast. Here's here's what it what we're never going to equivocate on, like with with quality and things like that and practices that that we always kind of want to be there. Uh, we had an all hands where we talked about it. we had a, a couple all hands even actually. Um, and then really a, a big part of it again is is it it all of that won't matter if it's not really getting down into where the engineers who really they're the important ones. They're the ones that have to, to really own this at the end of the day. And so we have to do everything we can to empower them. Uh, and so making sure that their leaders, their managers are, are helping them have an understanding and things and then having the tools and everything again to go fast and to do it in the way that we all agree we want to go fast. And I, one of the ways I kind of explain that actually, and, and I, I, I have a reputation for always using analogies, especially uh, like racing or Formula One analogies, because I'm a big Formula One fan, um, is I, I use this engine of an engine, or sorry, an, an analogy of an engine, where our, our engine is the development engine of delivering features and things. And you know, if you go jump in a car, every engine has like a red line where that's basically the imposed limiter to say, you can go up to this fast. If you go past this though, things, things will start to break. Um, and we maybe were going past our own red line to where things were starting to break. And, and again, it's not to say that the only solution is, okay, slow down. Um, in a lot of ways, it's actually, well, we want to go fast. And, and again, we believe that speed and quality are not mutually exclusive, but that doesn't mean that they can both come for free. And so if we want to keep going fast, but we want quality to stay higher, then we got to do the work to, you know, make it a stronger, more robust engine so that that red line increases so we can keep a sustained higher pace, but still within the limits of where we're, we're safe, where we're still ensuring we're, we're high quality. I love that analogy. You could take that so far too. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so uh what's your favorite uh racing team oh i have i have to say ferrari that's who i've been uh rooting for for a bit if especially for formula one um they haven't been having the best season so it's been a trying year as a ferrari fan um i'm actually excited too though because in in endurance racing so I, i'm one of those nerds that watches like the 24-hour le mans which is a 24-hour straight race and i'll often watch 24 hours of it, sometimes falling asleep in, you know, sections, whatnot, but, um, Aston Martin's a big, I'm a big fan of the Aston Martin racing team in 24 Le Mans and endurance racing. They're actually coming to formula one. So I might be switching and, and cheering for Aston Martin now in the future. Oh, nice. I, I was actually doing some interviews with some CTOs that were connected in that industry. And we had some interesting conversations about, uh, what is it called? Like booth time or, or there's some time where like how much, I'm going to butcher this. It was essentially like how much digital modeling that they were allowed to do. Oh yeah. 
there's like, like limits tunnel time yeah 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 there you go there's one like wind tunnel time but uh -huh. it was there was something related to like i think the like 3d modeling or some sort of performance modeling because you know we've got ai entering these things now right and so mm -hmm. they're going to impose limits on on all aspects of it in order to try to make it as fair of a competition as possible yep yeah it's, it's a it's like one of the cost cutting measures to let you know the the lesser funded teams still be competitive in things and and then that's actually one of the things i really love about the sport of formula one and, and a lot of other motorsports is it combines this like engineering with like uh competition and athleticism and they have like these constraints and to see the creative solutions that teams come up with is like mind-blowing like they'll do the most creative interesting things to try to really push the limits of what they're allowed to do it's i think it's really inspirational because again like a lot of times it, it, we will box ourselves in and say like, well, here's, here's only what I'm like capable of doing right now in my situation. So I really can't be that much greater, but you know, again, like some of these formula one teams, that's like nonsense to them. They like, this, this is, this, this is the box we have to operate in, but it doesn't dictate how fast we can go. We can be creative and work around, you know, some of those barriers or limits. Do you have any family in racing or have you ever driven a, one of those cars? Uh, I don't have any family in racing. In fact, I'm, I'm kind of the only, my, well, I guess my wife watches it quite a bit with me too. She's, she's a big fan. We've gone to some races. Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm kind of the only one in my family that really loves motorsports like that. Uh, I haven't driven like an open wheel racing car. It'd be, it'd be an experience to drive something like a Formula One car. Uh, I have driven like a few like supercars, like Ferraris and Lamborghinis and things um, like around a track and whatnot. So yeah, that's a lot of fun. That's, that's a whole different different hobby too my uh, grandfather was into boat racing oh cool wow yeah he won the uh, world championship in 1988 with don johnson holy cow like, like the yeah. cigarette boat racing yeah and, yeah so like growing up i was always like on the docks and around all the boats and so that smell of the motors and everything is like and man the amount of that they're dangerous sports but i'll tell you what the adrenaline you get from that even just being around it is so real when you feel the pressure of the sound on you and you hear the motors and that it just does something i get why people are like really really into it yeah it's a it, it, it's kind of funny because i i had a friend who uh i got like i was driving an older car decided to get a newer car and it was kind of a sporty audi that i ended up getting um so it was a little bit faster and fun and i remember i showed up to work with it and he was like why would you spend money on a car like that? Like just get, to, get something that gets you from point A to point B. And, you know, like a week or two later, we go to lunch and I'm kind of hooning a little bit in it, you know, going a little bit faster. And he's like, okay, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. This, this is a lot of fun. So. Oh yeah. So let's, let's talk a little bit about inspiration here as we start to wrap up. So you're a leader of this company. It's grown three 13 to, to over 300. And so people look to you, all responsibility. You, you did get the, you know, the time to become that, right? Like, it's not like you just went in from like never having managed more than 20 people to going right into like 300. So you had like a nice, nice progression, but I'm curious, mm -hmm. uh, you know, how do you take care of yourself? Like, how do you gain inspiration so that then you can help, you know, feed the team? Cause you have to take care of yourself first before you can help others. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's definitely important that you, you can't, uh, my, uh, my wife's actually a, a mental health therapist by like education and former profession. And she used to use this analogy with people that like, before you 
can give to other people. You have like your, your love bucket that you have to make sure is, is, you know, sealed so that it doesn't leak and then is full so that you can take from your love bucket to give to other, you know, other people's love buckets. And, um, maybe it's weird to talk about love buckets at work, like energy bucket. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I think it's still, yeah, the concept applies, right. Where just like you said, you have to be in a good place as a leader, uh, before you can take care of your, your team and things like that. And, and I definitely, I, I feel like that's it people see it too. It's not just a matter of like, do you have the the energy or the the willpower to like do the work type of thing? It's also like, is it is it kind of coming off of you? Like when you're when you're in meetings or situations working with people, is your kind of excitement or passion whatnot infectious and like helping people like feel kind of the same way? And and so I, I think for me, um what I what I try to do to do that, because it's I mean it's a good question, is I, I try to take steps back like pretty deliberately and kind of like like carve out time for myself where again it kind of comes back to that like you have to be very focused on like, okay, I'm gonna eliminate fears and things like that, those worries, the anxieties. I'm gonna take a step back and I almost like have to be very deliberate and conscious saying, Okay, Greg, you get an hour to just dream, to just unabashedly like just pretend you're like the best CTO that's ever walked on the planet and you've got the best team ever and things are wildly successful, like more than you could ever have hoped. Like just give yourself an hour to bathe in that. And, 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 and to just like, I don't know, get that kind of rejuvenating, uh, like, I don't know, that drive that passion, that excitement, enthusiasm. And again, like you can't, you have to come out of that obviously and come back to the real world and things. But I think it gives you that like other side of like, okay, like break out of the mold, break out of, you know, maybe the, the problems that I'm dealing with and, and balance that back with like, yeah, like this, this, this is awesome too. Like there's a lot of things to be really excited about. Um, and that, that kind of recharges the batteries. And again, then you can go be a better leader for everyone else too. I love that. I love it. I'm going to clip that. You described something that I've wanted to articulate for like a year. You just described like the proper use of imagination. Yeah. Right. Like it's like an intentional imagination because so, I mean, uh, when it's on autopilot, it's going to be protecting us, right? A lot of fear scenarios. We run millions of simulations in our head on multiple scenarios. If somebody asks you if you want to go out to eat, you run a simulation on the experience and what the quality would be like before you answer, right? It's just very fast. And so what you did, what, what you described at least, what I took from it was, you, you actually will step back and imagine a much better scenario, like, like a perfect scenario or an ideal scenario, and then start to look at it like in a 360 way. And then you can figure out the gap between where you are today and how you could potentially get to that scenario. That's a, that's a good intentional use of imagination. Yeah. No, I think it's... Uh... Got to write a book, Greg. <laughs> One day maybe, yeah. We'll, we'll include that in our book then, you know, give you credit. Be like, this is Greg's advice on proper use of imagination. <laughs> nice. Perfect. I'll, I'll take it. Dude, this is great. We made a podcast, man. How do you feel? Good. Yeah. No, th- this is, this is always fun because, uh, it, it, again, it's, it's, it's a lot of what we've kind of talked about. It's, it's, it's a chance to, to kind of reflect, it's a chance to talk about things. This, this is a fun way that I feel recharged and rejuvenated too. So yeah, definitely, definitely happy to spend this time and, Certainly learned a lot from you as well, so I appreciate it. What, what's the call to action, you guys? Your free product, people can go download, start using you, start divvying up money right away. Where did they do that? Yeah, getdivvy.com. Uh, and you can you can either request a demo or just get signed right up and start going. Um, free product, 
So, you know, get over there, uh, get signed up, fire the other, uh, the other products that you're using, save some money on some of those and use a better product that, that equips your company to spend smarter. Excellent. We'll put links in the show notes, put links to you, put links to the website so they can sign up. And uh, you have a fantastic afternoon, my friend. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, you too. All right. See you, bud. All right. See you. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.